Uh, this summer, we have been moving through the Gospel of Mark, and uh, I, I, feel, I feel quite nudged by this Gospel. There's 16 chapters. We've been going over 16 weeks, and unbelievably, we're at chapter 12 and week number 12 right now, getting towards the end of the book. And uh, I, I don't know if you feel nudged by this book, but this common theme that we sort of somewhat discovered in the Gospel is that it's, it's like Jesus gets up every single morning, and He is just a very directed person. Uh, very, very much uh, proactively stepping into his father's plans. And you, we see him coming out with statements like, I've got to be about my father's business. I must fulfill what he, my hour has not yet come. He knows where he is and what he's doing. And you never get a sense what Jesus is like sitting on his hands. You never get any chapter here where he's sort of twiddling his thumbs or wondering, you know, what can I do next? There's nothing like that. And so I challenge every one of you, particularly those of us, you know, sometimes it's easy to be passive in life, isn't it? Um, who, who here is a procrastinator? Who here is going to tell me later? <laughs> you know, and I hope you get nudged by the Holy Spirit. And, and for us as followers of Christ, when we start things, we finish things. Uh, as followers of Christ, when we, when we say, hey, here's a dream or an ambition, there's something that we would say, and I'm going to actually step into it and not talk about it for a decade. And I hope you feel nudged by Jesus and inspired by Him as we see Him every single week, just like, this is what I'm going to fulfill. And then in comes situations and people who are extremely desperate and crowds and problems and, and kind of antagonists and people who dislike and, and hate Him and actually want to kill Him and distractions. And He's like, yeah, yeah, I got all that, and I still got what I'm doing. I'm actually able to rise above all of those pieces and fulfill what my Father wants me to speak and do and say and represent. Quite, quite incredible stuff. Last week, Jesus, unbelievable. He was just fulfilling Old Testament Scripture, like just checking them off. Ezekiel and Psalms and, and uh, Zechariah. He's like, yeah, I did that, I did that, I did that. Fulfilling all of these Old Testament. Coming into Jerusalem for the very last time. In some traditional churches known as Palm Sunday, they're cutting down these leaves from the trees in the fields and laying them out and their coats. And Jesus comes in on this donkey. He knows where he's going. He's going to his execution. He's going to his crucifixion. And he knows it. And he's content to move proactively, deliberately in that direction. And this crowd, they've watched him and listened to him. They've seen Lazarus alive, dead, and alive. Wow, the feeding of the 4,000 and the 5,000. The blind man, son of David, have mercy on me. Changing supernaturally his ability to see. Incredible. And then Jesus comes in. He fulfills Zechariah chapter 9, rides in specifically on a donkey. And something stirs inside these people. These people who had this his history, which they would always refer to. Look at what God has done. Look at God's hand on our, on our lives as a nation. Look at all these stories that we have with Moses and Abraham and Elijah and the prophets and all of these scenarios and Babylon and exile and, and, and the supernatural. That's been the God of the past. And yet equally so, this sense of, but he's coming back. Every generation telling these stories that one day a Messiah would come in the lineage of David and he would return. And they, they could never let go of it. They wouldn't. They were impassioned. And so when they see Jesus coming into Jerusalem for the last time, and he's just ticking off the boxes of all of these prophecies, it suddenly dawns on them. And something is, a, is awakened inside of them where they, they're saying, are you kidding me? In my generation, 
are you telling me that I get to see the one that we've been waiting hundreds of years for? That he's right in front of us, that he's walking in triumphantly into Jerusalem, and they just start to clap and shout and sing. It's like the city is vibrating. Incredible, incredible entrance. The Savior, the King, he's right here amongst us. Now, as if that were not enough, because that's not a bad day's work, as if that were not enough, watch the man of action move into chapter 12. And he's about to do something, and, and really and truly, I'm not exaggerating, what he's going to do is hardcore and very, very public. And it will perhaps become the straw that breaks the camel's back because it absolutely infuriates these different groups of people, Sadducees and Pharisees, the high priests, the scribes, the elders. What he's about to do is just going to tick them off and they'll become livid. He makes his way through the crowd. He goes into the temple. And for the second time in his ministry, perhaps you're familiar with this, the first time he went in, he's doing the exact same thing the second time. He sees these people in the house of God who are basically set up this little currency exchange rate thing going on. And they're selling product in the house of God. It's supposed to be for God's sacrifices. And yet they're taking advantage of the poor. And Jesus sees it for the second time. Whereas on the first occasion, he sat down patiently get this, and braided a whip. How many times do you do that in your life? I'm going to get a whip and braid it. I'm going to kick these guys out of the house, my father's house. This time he just storms in there and he just tosses the tables. Get out of here. What are you doing? This is obscene behavior for the house of God. And look at what he says. Verse 17, end of 11, before we get into 12. He says, my house. <laughs> I like that. My house, this is divinity speaking, my house will be called a house of prayer for the nations. What do you think you're doing? And the merchants go running. He won't even let them carry anything. Stuff goes flying everywhere, money and product. Not only were they inappropriately buying and selling and taking advantage of the poor, but check this out. They were also using the temple, check this out, as a shortcut. It had turned into a shortcut. I've been to Jerusalem. I've been to the temple. It's huge. It's a massive complex. If you're on one side of the city and you want to get to the other, I get it. It would be a whole lot shorter. But the, the temple wasn't designed to be some kind of thoroughfare for people to just take a few minutes off their walk. And that's what it had become. They were now waltzing to through sacred courtyards and places where there was supposed to be worship and sacrifices going on simply out of convenience. Verse 16 says this, he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. You know what he's done? He's actually set up a blockade. So he chucks the tables. The product goes flying. The money goes flying. The merchants go running. The buyers and the sellers are out the door. And then he comes in here and he sets up this unauthorized blockade so that no one else is going to treat the house of God, which shall be a house of prayer for the nations, as some kind of convenient uh, shortcut. Not only that, but he stayed there all afternoon. And so the festival, biggest one of them all, was taking place, Passover. He shut down the afternoon sacrifice. This is unheard of. At the end of the day, Jesus and his followers voluntarily withdraw. They have made a massive public statement. This new Messianic king has claimed his own house 
and he has signaled in front of all of these religious groups of people who should have done something about it themselves that the behavior that was going on was inappropriate, that it was obscene, and that should never have been taking place in the house of God. Now, Middle Easterners take their sacred sites very, very seriously. So no surprise that a result of, I think, what is pretty hardcore stuff, right? It's a, this was a big deal. It was loud and it was public that we get three groups of people, chief priests and scribes, that simply come together and they are like, it's time to destroy this man. Look at what he's done. They're furious for what he had done. They're furious because people are hanging on his every word. Jesus' actions have provoked those people, and the only reason that he was still somewhat safe was because of his extraordinary popularity. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are known as the Synoptic Gospels, we see a delegation of three separate groups of people who normally were at each other, against each other. Aristocracy in the Sadducees, different theology, they had, their, they had their little levels and their power plays. What happens with Jesus is they actually are bonded together in their mutual hatred of Jesus Christ and their desire to destroy him. And they come up to Jesus after all of this scene, this entrance into Jerusalem, this tossing of the tables and money and merchants and this blockade for hours and shutting down the sacrifices. And they come up to him, Jesus, we've got one question for you. Who do you think you are? That's what they say to him. Who do you think you are that you have a right to do all of this stuff that you've done? How dare you? More specifically, this is how they pose their question. By what authority do you do these things? That's what they said. That's the question they ask. And classic Jesus Christ style. He doesn't answer their question. And instead, he asks them a question. And it's a hard question. It's a question that put them at odds with each other. He knew exactly what he was doing. And they can't answer the question. And Jesus, it's almost like a middle schooler. He's like, well, if you won't answer my question, I'm not going to answer your question. And he doesn't. He doesn't answer their question. Instead, he tells a story. And that is the context for what we're going to look at today in Mark chapter 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a tower. He leased it to tenants, and he went to another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some fruit of the vineyard. This would be his rent, right? He owns the vineyard, he built the vineyard, he put it there, and he's leasing it to these guys. So this is a very legitimate thing to do. And they took him, talking about this man's servant, and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. Now let me pause right here in the story. The next thing that Jesus is about to say for everyone who was listening to the story, was the no way that's part of the story statement. Are you telling me that this is where this is the left turn that this story is? To, this actually for them would have been shocking to hear. Okay, servants being beaten and eventually killed, and then he says this: he had still one other, a beloved son. And that's where they're all like, no, 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 no. D don't tell me the story's going there. 
Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is their heir. Come, let us kill him, and then the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Huge question. He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And then Jesus quotes a scripture from the Old Testament. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived, they're very bright, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. So they left him and went away. What a powerful story. This parable is often described as the parable of the tenants, or other people call it the parable of the wicked vine pressers. I think in that title, there's a little bit of an assumption that this is a story about these evil men and that somehow they're the main characters in the story. But actually, I don't think that's the case. I think the, the owner of the vineyard is the main character in the story. I think he is the hero in the story. Now, if for those of you who have been around this church any length of time, you'll probably notice that I don't often quote Greek or Hebrew words when I preach. And I actually do that on purpose because I never want to underscore or emphasize a need of ancient languages to understand or to read the Bible, although it's wonderful to be able to tap into that. But today I want to make a little bit of an exception. I want to introduce you to a Greek word, and it's simply this, macrothymia. Macrothymia. And the reason why I want to pull that out and emphasize that is because I just can't find a good equivalent word in English for it. I just can't. The hero in this story, the owner of the vineyard, he is displaying this Greek word, macrothymia. It's when a person who's in a position of power, who has the ability to exact vengeance on his enemies, who've done something awful and terrible, he chooses, even though he's got the power, he chooses not to do that. He literally puts anger away from him. He's removing anger from his own life. In this story, instead, he opts for total and utter vulnerability instead of violence. And I can't find a word in English to describe this virtue. Here's my combination effort. The virtue is something like this. I think it is a person who has an incredible amount of power and clout, and yet instead of getting back and getting even and putting those people in their place, they are beginning to champion a sense of patience, and there's suffering Long suffering. It goes on for a long period of time. Incredible risk taking. There's a major roll of the dice here. Uh, maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't do this. There's incredible compassion and absolutely a sense of self emptying. My best attempt to put it into one word in English would be to describe this hero of the story, this owner of the vineyard, to say that he is noble. He is a noble person, filled with long-suffering and compassion and risk-taking and self-emptying. David in the Old Testament, there's a period of time where he's on the run for months and months in his life. Even though he is anointed king, he has not been made king. 
And the current king is a not-so-nice guy by the name of Saul. And Saul is so filled with jealousy towards a young David who's going to be the future king that he is literally just chasing him to kill him. He is hunting this man until he's dead. And there comes this moment in Scripture where David finds Saul asleep in a cave. And there's this moment, and no one would have blamed David. David, go for it. Just kill him. It would take you two seconds, and you can take this running around that you've been doing for months, living like a savage in the desert and in through caves. You can end this threat upon your life. It wouldn't take you a moment, and this pain could be gone from you. But David doesn't do that. He literally puts anger far away from himself. And so the noble vineyard owner, what he does is he sends a servant to get his rent, to get some fruit from the vineyard. The first servant is beaten. The second servant is beaten and treated shamefully. The third servant is wounded and cast out. And then it just goes on further to simply say, and it doesn't give us the count, that more servants were brought and they were actually beaten or killed. Now this is an honor-shame culture. And so what is being done to the servants in this culture? Absolutely. The treatment of these servants who are beaten and shamed or killed is a mirror reflection of their treatment of this noble owner of the vineyard. You cannot separate those two things. What they're doing to the one is a reflection upon what they're doing to this noble man. How much violence and shame against his servants is he going to tolerate? He's got power. He could do something about this. And look at his response. And this is the shocking moment for everyone listening to the story. He had still one other a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. I'm going to send my son, my beloved son, the, the boy that I love. Surely when they see him, they will feel shame for what they have done to me. He had the right to contact the authorities. He had the right to have armed guards, militia come on in, heavily armed company, trained men to come in. They could have stormed the vineyard. They could have dealt with these guys, arrest them, and kick them out. No problem. He would have been within his rights to do that. But there is a question here that must be answered. In this culture, there's no way that this scenario could have happened and that you could have said, well, you know, that really didn't go well. I think I'm going to walk away from it. You can't do that. You know, you can't shrug your shoulders at it and say, well, maybe I'll build another vineyard somewhere else and that'll go better for me. This question must be answered. The abuse of his servants is an insult to his person in an honor-shame culture. And he is honor-bound to do something about it. He's bound to deal with it. It cannot be ignored. So here's the question. What is to be done with anger that is generated by injustice? It's not a question for the story. It's a question for you. It's a question for me. Ever had injustice come in your life? Of course you have. If there's anyone here who hasn't had that, you know, wait five minutes, right? What do you do when something was done against you and it elicits and it generates anger inside of you? What do you do with that? Will this person, the noble vineyard owner, Will he allow his enemies to dictate his response? And I'll be honest with you. I have had things done to me in my life 
and my enemies have dictated my response. I have thought and said and acted in ways where I would look at that and say, that's not the man I want to be. That's certainly not the Christ example that, that I said I would follow Christ in. I have, and I've utterly failed in that. I've allowed my enemies to dictate my response. I'm not alone with that, am I? Thank you for that rousing. Okay. Wow, I'm like terrible. I'm just an awful person. Some of you right now, you're battling with something that was said or done against you. What are you going to do with that? Will you allow whatever was done or said or the person or their attitude or what they should have done or what they never did, are you going to allow them to now dictate the way you respond as opposed to how Christ would tell you to respond? This noble vineyard owner, he is in a position of power. Retaliation would have been expected in this situation. It would have been easy for him to retaliate. Verse 5 says this, Then the owner of the vineyard said, What can I do? What can I do? And I want you to feel the emotion behind that. When he asks that question, he has had servant after servant after servant who have been sent back, abused, treated shamefully, or beaten or killed multiple times, which is a reflection on himself. You've got to know when he says, what can I do? That's not, oh, you know, he's angry. He is ticked off when he's asking that question. He is frustrated. There's pain and anguish and rejection. There is a desire in him that every one of us in this room knows about. Retribution. I'm going to get back. I'm going to put this right. I'm going to put them in their place. How many times have you said in your life, what am I going to do? And it's angry. And you just want to get back because you're ticked off and what happened wasn't right and it wasn't fair. Now, I know I mentioned this before, but I really want to underscore this. Please know this. The next statement in, in the story that Jesus is telling was just shocking for them. This is what it says. Here's what I'm going to do in answer to my question. I will send my beloved son. This is the moment in my imagination where everybody listening in that temple, that massive blockade with all those high priests and, and, and Sadducees and scribes and elders listening, that's when mouths were open and you just heard gasps. You're not going to do that. Don't send your son, not to those guys. Look at the track record here. Somehow, he has reprocessed his anger into grace. Somehow, and it's the complete surprise in the story. In the 1980s, this is a true story, the king of Jordan was King Hussein, not Saddam Hussein, King Hussein. This king was informed, it's a true story, by his security police that a group of 75 Jordanian officers were at that very moment in a very nearby barracks and that they had met secretly plotting his demise and the overthrow of his kingdom. The security officers for King Hussein, the king of Jordan, asked permission, let us go to that barracks, we're going to surround them and we're going to take care of business. After a somber pause, the king refused and he said, bring me a small helicopter. A helicopter was brought and the king climbed in with just the pilot. They flew to the barracks where these 75 men were plotting his death and he landed on the roof. And the king told the pilot, if you hear gunshots, I want you to fly away without me immediately. Unarmed, the king walked down two flights of stairs where he suddenly appeared in the room 
where the plotters were meeting, and he quietly said to them, Gentlemen, it has come to my attention that you are meeting here tonight to finalize your plans to overthrow the government, take over the country, and install a military dictator. If you do this, the army will break apart, the country will be plunged into civil war, and tens of thousands of innocent people will die. There is no need for this. Here I am. Kill me. Then one person will be dead and will be done. In that moment of stunned silence, the rebels, as one, rushed towards the king, and they fell at his feet to kiss his feet, and they pledged loyalty to him for the rest of their lives. King Hussein, he opted for total and utter vulnerability. He acted nobly because he wanted to motivate, he wanted to elicit in them honor in the life of a rebel. That's what he was doing. And Jesus is being asked a venomous question. Who do you think you are? By what authority do you think you are? Walking in here, pretending to mimic Old Testament scripture, tossing over these tables, shutting down the sacrifices, setting up a blockade in, in the temple. By what authority do you do these things? And Jesus is answering them by telling them an autobiographical story about himself. You may think that the owner of the vineyard is reckless to send his son after they have mistreated and killed so many of these servants. But look at the motivation in the heart of this noble vineyard owner. Look at what it says. In the NIV it says, it may be that they will respect him. Do you see the risk in this? In the RSV, it may be that they will feel shame before him. He's looking to elicit honor in them. What is transpiring in this story is deeper and more profound than a question of respect. The owner is speaking out of incredible nobility, macrothemia. He is profoundly hoping that his choice of total and utter vulnerability in sending his son will awaken these violent men and that it would elicit, elicit compassion and respect in them and that they would experience conviction and a change of hearts. His servant have been beaten and shamefully treated, but now the owner of the vineyard is risking a far greater loss. And Jesus says, you want to know why I've come into Jerusalem? Why all of Israel is laying down palm trees. Why they're hanging on my every word. Why I've overturned these tables and emptied the temple. I have shown you my power. I've shown you my divinity and my kingship. I've shown you the supernatural. I've shown you healing and words of life. And I have fulfilled again and again Old Testament prophecy. But you refuse to listen to me. So now I am forecasting for you a caliber of compassion and leadership like you've never seen before. And it's about to climax in my total and utter vulnerability that will cost me everything as I self-empty my own life. It started in a manger, and it will finish with these two words. It's finished, and he is risen. Now think about the whole picture. It's an incredible story. Look at the whole thing that's transpired just in a matter of a few hours. 
I want you to see Jesus coming into Jerusalem, riding on this donkey, fulfilling Old Testament messianic prophecy, remembering the fulfillment of Scripture. That's what these people were doing. Jesus coming in from this high place, down from the Mount of Olives, coming in through the East Gate, just like it's foretold in the book of Ezekiel chapter 10. Coming through the East Gate, the glory of God returning to Jerusalem, entering the city on this animal just like Zechariah had prophecies. And now the ground is rumbling because the people are praising and clapping and singing and dancing and they're shouting out. What's the word they're shouting out? Hosanna. And it means, save us. You are the embodiment of salvation. The place is shaking with the glory of God as he enters the city. And look at his closing words as he, sh- as he closes up this story. He finishes off the parable by simply saying this. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Worship team, come on up. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now watch what Jesus is doing. He is showing them again his authority and his kingship. Watch him fulfilling scripture again. Like he didn't do enough of it in the previous chapter, now he moves to Psalm 118. Now I want you to remember the whole story of Jesus coming in, of what they were shouting, of the fulfillment of all of these prophecies. Look at this prophecy in Psalm 118. As he's coming in through the east gate, down from this place on high, it says, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, and the righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me, and you've become my what? My salvation is the very thing that they're speaking. And then he quotes, this is what he's quoting. In, at the end of this story, he's quoting Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected. What does stone mean? Stone was a well-known symbol in the Old Testament to simply mean this, Messiah. He was calling himself the stone. He was calling himself the rejected Messiah. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us. That's what they were shouting out. Look at it, it's right here. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Once again, Jesus is simply linking himself to Old Testament prophecy. I'm showing you I'm the Messiah. This is a claim of divinity, and the scribes who knew their scriptures, they knew exactly what he was saying. Jesus was calling himself that stone, and he was saying to them in that moment, you're rejecting me. That's what you're doing right now. You're saying no to the one that you've been waiting for. He's telling them in no uncertain terms. They were rejecting the Messiah, but the one that they were rejecting was going to become this cornerstone, the bedrock of Hosanna, salvation. We're going to break bread together right now. For every person here who is a follower of Jesus Christ, I invite you to come and partake and participate.